0: Thank you, thank you very, very much to the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Network uh, for hosting. Um, I was with Phil Clark in, at SOAS on Friday evening, so uh, he's spirited no, no doubt also here. And to this <coughs> you and Oxbees, thank you very, very much also for your contribution and, uh, and for your hospitality at St. John's College.
1: Um,
0: there'll be, uh, um, I want to also acknowledge um, all of you that's uh, given up your lunch hour to be here uh, but most importantly Kate Regan who's a real uh, hero of mine for many years um, her work in the constitutional court is one thing and then subsequent to that her work in civil society in South Africa, uh, one of the more important things that I think uh, Kate was involved in was the police commission or the informal civil society investigation into policing in Kailicha, which is a huge township outside Cape Town and Kate presided over almost a, it wasn't a Truth and Reconciliation style event but it had the reminiscence of that where people could come and tell how the police is treating them or not treating them and this became a very hefty report that went, um, that went to government But I don't think really Ivo is correct that there's anybody better placed and I'm very honoured to have you. Thank you for coming today, Kate. And then I want to acknowledge my friends also who came. um, I'm not going to acknowledge you all by name, except perhaps to say that when I was a postgraduate student here uh, in 1991-3, to did my PhD, there were many contributions that that nursed me across the line to, to make sure I get this degree. But two of them were indispensable. The one was my supervisor, Paul Fides from Regent's Park College, who was incredibly word-specific. I remember he had a green felt-tip pen in which he questioned every word and why this word and not the other, which greatly aided my progress. And then um, uh, David Young in the back there. Um, David is the former director and founding director of uh, Oxford Analytica. Um, and um, a a great friend and I just remember one night him dropping me off at Keeble College sitting in his little Morris minor and him saying to me I I asked his advice on how do I proceed now because I also played rugby and did a bit of studying on the side at the time (laughs) and he said to me I've only got one piece of advice for you with a PhD Funny. get it written, not right. Get it on a piece of paper, and then we can later on make sure it's right. And if it wasn't for that advice, I think I'd still be milling the corridors of Oxford today. So, um, uh, wonderful to see you. Uh, This project started in 2012 when I was in sabbatical at Notre Dame University at the Kroc Institute. And simply all I did was I read every political theory of reconciliation I could find, lay my hands on. And um, because if you come from the so-called field and you go into the, the quiet of academia, it can be overwhelming, deafening, the silence, and it's difficult to concentrate. So I just didn't try and write anything, I just read. And as I read, there were patterns beginning to emerge of these kinds of theories. And I built a paper uh, around that, three kinds of theories on reconciliation, which I'll say a little bit more about. And that became the heart of the book. But um, a book always starts with, first of all, a feeling in your gut. And um, there are two feelings I remember. The one is reading these international theories. Almost everybody quoted South Africa as a foundational case. And in my view... Almost everybody quoted it incorrectly
1: Um,
0: Based on accumulation of myths And the fact that if you repeat something Often enough it becomes the truth Uh, And so there's truisms in our field Associated to us Which irritated me That this is historically simply incorrect For those of us who were there Who lived through parts of it This is not how it happened That was the one feeling I had increasingly, but domestically in South Africa, there was another feeling, increasingly a feeling of fear about the forgetfulness of South Africans on their own story of reconciliation and how the real history of reconciliation is being uh, replaced by caricatures that is politically expedient for the so-called left and the so-called right because there's a genuine left and there's a genuine right there's also a so-called left and a so-called right and increasingly in South Africa it felt to me it was almost like a dirty dance between the left and the right that needed one another to confirm each other's worst fears so when Afri Forum runs to Fox News to say there's a white genocide because there's going to be land reform in South Africa there's a white genocide of farmers and President Trump tweets about this. Then Black First Land First, who is a sponsored uh, uh, illegitimate left-wing organization, says, i tell you so, look, there are a lot of unreconstructed racists that are occupying the land. Whereas Afri Forum does not speak for the average farmer in South Africa. And then you have uh, every time Black First Land First or Bell (coughs) Potter for that matter, based in London, um, stokes some racial tension in South Africa, then the right wing say we told you so. This is a racial vendetta. Now, just I, have, I can't resist to say Oxford Analytica and Cambridge Analytica have nothing, zero to do with each other, <laughs> this is the precursor, this is the original. And that is a fantastic organization that you should all know about. Cambridge Analytica is similar to Bell Pottinger. Spread some fake news. Uh, but, but just to make that point, David, I think you... Um, um, so, you know, so this middle ground, that and, and, and then going back to history, there really was a period in our, in our, in our country's history where ordinary South Africans could say they say in a way... And and reason, reason uh, pervaded, Um, and it's during the transitional period. Um, And I built the case for that uh, in the first part of the book. I reread histories that have been published. I did not try and reproduce a history in the book because there's excellent histories on this already. I read some of the original archives, and I also interviewed some of the key players. and, and got some confirmations or, you know, uh, debunked some myths as a result of these interviews. Um, but one of the myths that I, that I look, that I point out in, in the first section of the book, things like that Mandela forgave De clerk, and that, that is why they could move on as political adversaries. The clerk never asked for forgiveness. It was never on the table. He, he, say, he came out of the TRC and said, my hands are clean. So why would Mandela forgive somebody if he didn't even ask for it? It was not the operational term. It was not what defined their relationship. They never really got on with each other, but they were two politicians who got the job done, despite their differences. And they were very different individuals. That, that Mandela and the ANC leaders Were somehow sellouts to global capital I find this particularly offensive In fact, as a South Africa When this argument is made to me As if there's no agency in the liberation movement No agency um, in, in black leadership in South Africa And that they're simply stooges of sinister white capitalistic motives. I find that very, very um, offensive But it's, it's a strong myth at the moment and, but there's also no historical evidence for that. That no progress has been made in reconciliation and that the country is a failed state. It's not true. Uh, you know, we, We've been tracking ordinary South Africans' views on reconciliation since 1994 at the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation. And it's clear that the majority of South Africans, the vast majority, still today want reconciliation and think not enough has been done on it. So clearly, it's not as if the country is racially polarized completely, as the popular picture says. Also, I try and debunk the myth that the TRC was a one stop shop for reconciliation that was meant to solve our reconciliation issues and all our other issues in one commission's lifetime of 18 months. Um, which is often the critique level that the TRC why did you not address poverty as well and structural injustice well there's only so much one Commission can do and people forget that when the um, when the TRC was announced in the same speech that Mandela announced the TRC in Parliament he announced the RDP so the RDP the reconstruction development plan the restructuring of the economy and all that was supposed to run parallel to the TRC. That the Mbeki government then stopped that economic program in its tracks because of fiscal pressure and wanting to grow um, and 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 really leaving the redistribution argument aside for a while. Um, that is, you know, that that is not the TRC's fault. So. Um, and then also, I, I do try and say, make a case that the TRC was not the same. What, what they did through the amnesty program was not the same as impunity. Conditional amnesty, the way South Africa did it, is not the same as impunity. And um, if you want to know how I make the case, then you must read the book, unfortunately. <laughs> because there's no time for me to go to more detail in that. But then, equally, in terms of the international commentary on South Africa, in the middle section of the book, I turn to these three theoretical frameworks that reconciliation is often presented in. <coughs> the forgiving embrace, I call the one, which is basically based on the notion that a perpetrator say, I'm sorry, a, a victim forgives the perpetrator, and the perpetrator pay redress pay some reparation. That is a very classic Christian-infused notion of forgiveness. My question that I pose in the book is how applicable is that in a politic, as a political program? And I point out what I think are two very important difficulties with that approach within a with political program. The first is often societies must wait for perpetrators to be genuinely remorseful, they're going to wait a long time. And then the moral failure of the perpetrator hold us hostage again a second time because they're simply unable to say they're sorry properly. And, and this was a real experience in South Africa. You, would, you, would, you can feel the anticipation and it's just not there. That moral depth, it's not there. And so what does the process then jump off at that point? What happens? And the second is a more theological point I suppose which is forgiveness really is about the unforgivable if if forgiveness is about anything less than the unforgivable then it's not about then it's not forgiveness it's about that which is really horrific otherwise it's cheap and unforgivable um, uh, and that sort of forgiveness is not something I think one can program into massive scale political programs and as if we can turn this theological gift, this divine gift as it were, on and off with a tap. We all hope for forgiveness. We all pray for forgiveness. But that it will happen is not the result of a political program. It is something that happens on the timetable of the victim when the victim is ready to do so and nobody else. So to make that formally part of a political program has difficulties. The second framework for reconciliation that I look at is the is the liberal peace agenda, which basically says you reconcile as long as you end up like like a liberal democracy in the West, you're fine. Now, um, my critique there is simply to say no I'm not against human rights, as I'm also not against forgiveness. These are good things. I'm not against li- uh, liberalism as such or democracy, but in South Africa. I don't think that was the dynamic that drove the process right the way through. It was not really this commitment to human rights. There was something else at play. There were times, I mean, I don't think the National Party, for one, came to the table somehow converted to human rights immediately while the death scots were still operating. I don't think they even had an idea that they wanted to end up with a one man, one vote democracy at all. these were things that happened as an outcome of a process that had some other driving force behind it which i will come back to and thirdly there is a there's a lot of theoretical work done the third area on reconciliation is agonism which is basically saying we replace bullets with words we we begin to be advocates of of nonviolent confrontation without trying to dissolve difference so no unity no harmony just robust debate and we're also not promising outcomes. We're just promising ongoing engagement now <coughs> And there I have to admit, you know, I'm, I'm in my my argument in the book is that um, Victims often I mean often violent conflict the first thing one senses when you walk into a place like let's say a Choli land in northern Uganda or in my case now Iraq Mosul the old city of Mosul is the silence it's not the vigorous debate it's that words have, be- have been stunted mooted the sheer violence of war often rob people of their words and it's very it's very harsh and difficult for victims to be thrust into um, debating positions um, as if they're part of the hurly-burly of political life when they have been struggling to find words for a long time. So, so, um, so, I also think agonism has merits, but I don't think that really describes what happens from that first moment all the way through. What I do think drives reconciliation, um, if you look at the South African case, is the promise of justice delivered incrementally in ever more inclusive and fair institutions and um, social and economic arrangements. It's therefore two things, it's radical, it's not for the faint-hearted reconciliation, it's a radical agenda. Often it's uh, reconciliation is juxtaposed with revolution to say revolution is a radical thing and Reconciliation is some other compromise. Reconciliation is a promise of justice. And therefore, it's actually very radical, (coughs) if taken seriously. But secondly, it's not revolutionary, it's evolutionary. It understands, it has the patience that everything cannot be delivered immediately because then, um, as somebody said that I quote also, the insistence on absolute justice often leads to absolute injustice. Um... So, but the key that unpacks this for me sits at the inception of reconciliation, where for me reconciliation starts with the acknowledgement of interdependence between fighting groups. And this is simply a a fact check, fact check, that we are in this together. If I look back at what Mandela wrote, what the cleric said about explaining his motives, Look at the negotiation process, the National Peace Accord on which uh, Les Carmichael is, is working and we're all hoping for that book to come out soon. Um, the CODESA, multi-party Negotiating Forum. What took people back to the table was not their forgiveness of one another. It was not their commitment to human rights. It was the sense we're in this together. Something that apartheid systematically denied and... Uh, for years. It's somehow one group can flourish while another group can be deprived. And it's a very, very, it's a startlingly simple idea, but it is absolutely, I think in South Africa's case, was a driving motivation. And why have we gone wrong recently? Because we have forgotten that we're in it together, especially with the poor. And so Kailicha can go on as, as it goes on, and now we have a much more integrated. Uh, uh, upper class, mid- middle class. So things look um, uh, cosmetically well at that level. But there is an underbelly to society that is as violent as it's ever been and really rough. And, and, but we, have, we, have, we are not systematically engaged um, in a sense of with the same urgency that says we're in this together. We're no longer in this together. We're no longer acknowledging that we're in this together. So, for me, and this is where the this is the point where I think the South African experience is translatable to other contexts, for example, Palestine-Israel and so on, is that you cannot flourish your group if you don't acknowledge the fact that you're in it with another group. And as long as they are systematically deprived, your group will not will not. Um, Flourish fully. Mandela once phoned up a general Afrikaner general, and with this I will conclude. Um, The general's name was General Constant Mulun. General Constant Mulun. He was the former head of the apartheid army, and at that point retired. And he had command of what he claimed to be tens of thousands of young white (coughs) militia militias who were sitting at home with their guns ready to be deployed his plan was because he had thought that the, that the uh, politicians had sold them out they formed something called the committee of generals and their idea was to pull back in a certain part of South Africa perhaps Mpumalanga and defend that territory, as an Afrikaner state. That was the plan B for uh, and at some point I think the plan A for General Fulun. He was a seasoned soldier; had been in the apartheid uh, machinery since 1960, and um, and was head of the defence. Was as I said. So, at one point during our transition, when everything was running in all directions and we were not sure if the centre of the country would hold, there was an uprising in one of the black bantustans, one of the stooge republics that the apartheid government maintained to have a veneer of respectability, and. The, the stooge president, Mangope, phoned <coughs> Filiun without contacting t- anybody else and said, please come help me. I need your help. So Filyun deployed 2,000 men to, to um, his capital there in the western part of South Africa. And it was a fiasco, complete military fiasco, because on the coattails of, of his, his properly trained uh, men, Came the, um, the 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 loony right with their hunting rifles and their pickup trucks, shooting, getting shot, all on national television. It was mayhem. The next morning, when the dust somewhat settled, Mandela phoned Frelut, and I actually phoned up General Frelut myself, and I had a couple of interviews with him. He's now over 80 years old. He's still farming, He's still on his motorbike herding the cows. Uh, <coughs> He said to he said to me, This actually happened like this. This is what changed my mind. He said Mandela phoned him up, he said to him, General, I need to admit to you, if what you say, half of what you say is true, then the ANC cannot beat humanitarian. But general, you cannot kill and oppress all black people forever in South Africa. Which logically leads me to think we will have to reconcile why don't we do it now before we have a civil war because we are still have a bigger cake to divide than after when the cake will be smaller and, and Falun says that argument was one he could take to the right wing he took his fatigues off put his suit on and it was that argument that made it possible for the right wing to become a political <coughs> movement and not a military movement um, and so it's the sense we're in this together just face the facts don't so too often we talk about reconciliation as a moral commitment as for the idealists as for the dreamers whereas the real people are the hawks I think it's the other way around actually I think reconciliation is for the realists the people who see the interconnectedness and the interdependence of the world as it in fact is and reacts to that And I think it's a message that also threatens to be somewhat lost in the time we're living in right now in in some of the political movements we're seeing um, internationally. Um, If I can leave you with one final image, it's perhaps the image of a rowing boat in the middle of the ocean, two people stuck in it, two enemies saying, we don't trust each other, but we're not going to sink the boat. We're rather going to row together for the shore. And as we row, we may talk and we may get to know each other. We may even reach a point of closure someday. But in the meantime, we'll at least be progressing towards the shore instead of swimming there in a boat. That is the reconciliation option as opposed to the military option or other options that we have. So I think with that I will conclude and hand to Kate. Thank you.
1: That was very interesting, and I very much enjoyed reading the book. And my comments are really going to be grouped into sort of three separate points. The first is to finish on, or to start with where you finish, which is this question of reconciliation as interdependence. And then I'm going to make a few points about the history and a few points about the present. Um, So just starting with the um, uh, reconciliation as interdependence, it seems to me that it is self-evidently right as a matter of historical fact That really what brought about the negotiations between the liberation movements and the National Party apartheid government was a recognition of that fact. And your story about Constantin Foljuren, I think, absolutely right. And I think even if one looks at from the liberation movement's perspective, despite, you know, uh, well, arguably nearly 30 years of of an armed struggle and the prospects of overthrowing the um, apartheid state were pretty minimal, um, um, it was a very powerful military um, establishment. Um, the, the suffering of the 10 years of what was really a, a long-standing civil uprising, and then following on 1976 and through the 1980s, where um, so many young people died, um, so many young people went into exile. Uh, was really also a message of stalemate. Um, both sides, no side was actually strong enough to overthrow the other side, but it was also impossible to create a, a stable um, functioning society in the midst of that. So as a, I think you're absolutely right. I'm not entirely sure where it takes you to beyond, it creates a moment, and if you've got rational people engaged in it, because I think that's another point, is that both sides were, you were sensible and reasonable enough to realise that's where they were at. Mm. There was that kind of common assessment of the situation and that meant that the whole conversation that then happened was a conversation between about, based on reason. Um, people didn't like one another, I think that's absolutely, absolutely right, but it was based on reason. Whether it can become, as it were, a, a theory of reconciliation, I'm not entirely sure, but I, do, I did like your point, which you made now perhaps more strongly than you did in the book, which is, and we will talking in a moment about where we are at the moment, that perhaps one of our real problems at the moment is we've forgotten this principle that we're in it together, and that that needs to be an inclusive principle, and that's, um, that's no longer so much of a racial issue as a serious class and poverty issue, and, and I, I accept that too. But it seems to be a slightly different point to the point that people came together because they both, on both sides, Mm. recognized that, in fact, there was was going nowhere and there was no possible outcome, which was either side was going to be um, victorious. And my own sense of that as a mediator is that that's absolutely true. If you can find, when you're in the middle of a mediation, if you can find the common ground between parties that recognize that they can't get their own way, they can't get what they want, but there is some kind of common ground for them which they can both live with, then you normally, your mediation is going to work. you just got to get them to, you've got to find whether there's such common ground and that's the same kind of phenomenon you are talking about. So that's the first thing. And turning into the history, I absolutely agree with you that one of the problems South Africa faces right now is we have a completely inaccurate reflection of what happened in the 1980s and 90s and probably even before that. But that's at the key moment of our transition and that's why it is very useful and, um, that, that, you know, books like this are being written, and I also, there are so many things, your, you know, your account of the Mandela-de-Clerk relationship, I'm sure is absolutely correct. You only had to look at the body language between the two of them. They were not friends, they did not feel that they had built a relationship of trust. That was not the case, but they both realised that they were leaders, they had, a, they had something to do that was in the interest of the community, they purported to represent. I think Mandela always saw himself as the leadership leader of all of South Africa. I'm not sure that the clerk ever had that vision. I'm pretty sure he didn't. But as leaders, they felt they had something to do, and it wasn't about their personal relationship. And I think um, that a lot of the debate about Mandela at the moment, particularly among the younger generation of present in a minute, is probably a complete misunderstanding of who Mandela really was, actually, at the end of the day. Um, I also agree with you that the process was so much more than the TRC. So Liz is here and she's gonna write about the National Peace Accord, and I think you very rightly locate the National Peace Accord as an you know crucially important initiative which was happening at the time and um, that the political negotiations were on again, off again, on again and it was, you know, the National Peace Accord which started building a habit of conversation, a habit of problem solving. And in many ways, that's actually what happens. So maybe it's not only interdependence, but it's a habit of problem solving, which some of it became extraordinary at. I mean, um, uh, you know, every single local government in South Africa, w- which there are around between 300 and 400, had to do a local negotiation and find out the solution to that, how that local government was going to be governed going forward. You know, this, this was a, a really extraordinary initiative. and. Um, and so that that we can find solutions. We've got a habit of problem solving. We know the problems seem really big. But if we all sit down and we open it. So those processes which we got into a habit of, I think were very, very constructive in that period. And I think they came out of the 1980s. I mean, maybe as a trade union lawyer, I think they came out of trade unions. But I, I think they did a bit. We had 10 or 15 years of black trade unions representing workers against both government in, in the public sector and the private sector. And the capacity for negotiation um, with people you really not, you, know, you really did think of as the enemy or people you disliked was rooted in that practice. So I think, it, you know, Cyril Ramaphosa was not surprising as a key negotiator because he had managed to organize mine workers, and they managed to negotiate <coughs> with the mining houses. That was a very important habit that got established. And all of that history, I think, is in danger of being lost. You don't mention in the book, but I think an equally important area is land claims legislation. It's one, one of the areas I worked a lot in, um, which was clearly a part of the process of um, acknowledging the evil of the past and trying to find a way forward with people who had had land taken away from them because of racist land laws and were to get it back. And that was just one of, you know, one of the many processes you mentioned, the NPA being another... Um, and of course, one of the big failures was the land reform program, which was meant to accompany the land claims legislation. And again, when Mbeki abandoned the RDP, he also abandoned the land reform <coughs> program in large measure. Um, it, an interesting political moment, I think. Um, so I think we need to rethink our history and understanding what happened, I think, was, um, is very important. It's, it's also important because it makes one realize, where I do fundamentally agree with you, is that South Africa is not a failed state. It's a messy, difficult democracy with deep levels of inequality, but a failed <coughs> state it most manifestly is not, and and that it could well have become. So we shouldn't underestimate what we have achieved. I think, particularly, we just spent time in Iraq. You know, people who are spending. It's possible for functioning states to become failed states. So yes. It, yes. I think we are, have a lot to be grateful for. Turning then to think about um, the um, the present. Um, And I'm not. I'm not saying much. I I largely agree with your analysis of these characteristics of forgiveness, the rule of law, and agonism. Although perhaps because I am a lawyer, I think the rule of law is one of the key parts of any process. Um, At the end of the day, um, that's that people need to live in a society in which they think that people who break laws will be held accountable for them, that they will be protected if they do not break the laws. Um, that there are places to go to get disputes resolved in an even-handed way seems to me to be a very fundamental part of any transitional process towards reconciliation. I don't think it's all of it, and to the extent that rule of lawyers and liberal lawyers might say that's all of it, that's clearly not so. Um, and that really brings us firmly to the present, because although we do have problems with our rule of law, certainly on any kind of global scale of rule of law systems, I think South Africa would, would do reasonably well. Um, um, we do have problems with the fact that the, the promise of reconciliation has been failed. And it's been failed because we have not managed to bring most South Africans into the functioning economy. Uh, the levels of inequality are enormous. Um, and those are both urban and rural problems. They are, in my view, largely a problem of the failure of government. And it was a very difficult time, you know. There's... Um, if the, uh, People often say if South Africa could have had the 1960s, we could have had the transition of the 1950s and the 1960s could have been the time for change. It would have been, from an economic point of view, a much better time, a time of huge um, in, uh, global growth, glo- growth in South African economy, much easier to deal with. Instead of which, although South Africa made some progress in the 90s, and one has to remember that the apartheid government left South Africa utterly bankrupt, so the first thing the um, African National Congress had to do was to try and stabilize South Africa's um, economy, which it did manage to do, but it really hasn't managed to grow it in any significant way. Failures in the education system have meant that um, a skilled um, a skilled uh, group of people to enter into the economy is, is just not there. And that has meant that in South Africa remains, in some very real ways, an apartheid society with Poor black South Africans at the bottom, and and that's <coughs> a, um, an enormous failure. And that's understandable then that people look back to what happened in the 90, early 1990s to blame to blame that on it. Um, my own view is that neither the constitution, which tends to get some of the same challenges that the reconciliation process does, nor the reconciliation process are the roots of the current problem. I think they were very deep problems, and I think. It was always going to be enormously ambitious to address them within a generation but that we've done so little is deeply disappointing and you talk about the problems of corruption and um, I think we've had effectively a waste of 10 years out of the 25 years that we've had and um, those have been extremely harmful time to have had that um, failure by government. So on balance I think that my last point is really that one of the things you don't deal with is the whole problem of Transgenerational justice in the context of reconciliation, because it is different to today's generation to be thinking about reconciliation to the generation of the 1990s. Um, for the generation that only excluded part of South Africa, young black South Africans by and large, um, they, you know, they still feel excluded, and they're, they're not, you know, looking around to decide who to blame for it. Um, for the middle class I agree that by and large that's now a non-racial group, it's very difficult for them to know how to deal with this as well but we are turning this debate into a failure of either the constitution or reconciliation or the whole democratic project and my own view is that's very dangerous um, and very worrying because I don't actually think that that's really where the fault lies, I think the fault lies exactly. much more squarely with, um, with both kind of what's happened since, what government has failed to do since. And not saying that what government sh- should have done is, was you know, obvious or easy, but um, I think that it's, it's to challenge our independent institutions, to challenge the project that was set in um, the mid-1990s, is probably to identify the wrong, uh, wrong place for putting pressure to bear. And uh, so in that, uh, you know, I, I share your concerns. But otherwise, I thought it was really interesting, and thank you very much for spending so much time to think about this. Um, one generation in, yeah, I think that's really a valuable thing to have done. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> 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 you like to respond immediately, or should we...
0: If just... One question, one thing I would like to say, which is I did not say anything on the third section of the book, which is actually where the theoretical framework is expounded and I mean what I'm trying to say there simply is that this core idea of interdependence needs to then be embodied institutionally and socially. Those are the two movements. And, and the two markers one needs to look out for whether this is in fact happening is inclusivity and fairness. So not, not, not enormously burdensome justice which is maybe too high, but incrementally every arrangement needs to be fairer and more inclusive. Fairer and more inclusive. And during our golden period, I would say that was the case. We managed every time to have a new institution that was more manifestly more inclusive and fairer to the people involved. And the litmus test for whether something is fair is to ask the participants not to stand from a very large distance and shout about it but ask the people inside it whether they think it's fair or not and, um, and I think this fairness and inclusivity if you take those as your uh, as your guiding principles for interdependence then clearly corruption compromises fairness and inequality compromises inclusion and these are the two big things that where we failed and therefore we have we have left the interdependence route. As as opposed to the um, uh, the earlier times when we I think subscribed to that.
1: I'm going to switch off the recorder now and
0: turn to the audience for uh, for questions.